thank you for being here this morning, or I should say thank you for letting me be here with you this morning. Uh, if you're not met, my name is Brad Orta. I have the privilege of being a pastor at Country Bible, uh, and I've had the privilege for a long time now to get to know some of your pastors very well, and uh, hear often about the way the Lord is working at Faith Bible, and I have to say, uh, I have been particularly blessed by the ministry of your church. Uh, your pastors spotted somebody that was maybe uh, brought into pastoral ministry a little bit earlier than he should have been when I was a younger person, and graciously put their arms around me and uh, helped me significantly. Uh, and over the years, uh, often, I've uh, called on uh, Faith Bible or the pastors of faith for counsel and advice. And uh, I'd say on, on one level, uh, it is uh, humbling to be here to talk to you this morning about fellowship, uh, because one of the things uh, I've learned uh, from this church body especially is uh, not only the degree of fellowship uh, that we're called to have amongst each other as members of one body, but even uh, more broadly, that we are all ultimately members of the heavenly host, and we should be striving to have uh, fellowship with one another. And so it's been a privilege to partner with uh, Faith Bible, for a country Bible, to partner with Faith Bible to see the gospel advance here in Lincoln and even outside of Lincoln. And I, for that reason, uh, I thought, you know, I, I could preach two messages this morning. I could, uh, I could thank Faith, uh, for the many evidences of good, God-honoring fellowship I've seen over the years. Uh, I don't really know your body well. I don't know the things that you struggle with. For all I know, uh, you know, we could be uh, struggling with gods of the city at country, or excuse me, at faith and at country Bible. You know, we struggle with gods of the corn. Uh, it was just... There's no, no real connection between what's happening at Country Bible and what's happening at Faith, but uh, you know, the more I thought about it, I, we all struggle with the same idols. Uh, and so, this morning, uh, I'm going to assume some things are true of Faith Bible, uh, some of the same things that are true of Country Bible, and uh, we're going to go from there. I, uh, I grew up in an age before streaming. Uh, I had a TV with two channels, and I learned to love old TV shows pretty early in life. And one show I stumbled across uh, was called Have Gun, Will Travel. And uh, I know many of you probably never even heard of that show. It was on in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but there's a trope in the show that was pretty common across all of the TV shows 
that I watched, and especially westerns. And in Have Gun, Will Travel, there's a, there's a character, uh, Paladin, and uh, Paladin is kind of what you'd expect and absolutely not what you would expect. Paladin, uh, you know, he went to the United States Military Academy, had an illustrious career in the Civil War, moves to San Francisco, and for half the time, he's kind of a bon vivant, man about town. He goes to the opera, he speaks multiple languages, he is very well lit, read in literature, he has great taste in fine wine. Uh, he is the chairman of the San Francisco Stock Exchange. He is, he's a man of the city. But on the weekends, Paladin uh, totally changes his outfit, dresses in all black, straps on his gun, and rides about the Wild West solving crime and helping people who need it, and there is no number of mercenaries that can stand against Paladin. He is the hero of every episode, and the longer I watched the show, the more ridiculous it got. Uh, like, uh, at one point, I learned he's like a karate master, uh, but, you know, the, the overall theme of every episode is... Uh, Paladin doesn't really need anybody else. Paladin is uh, kind of a singular force, and he sets things right on his own. He doesn't... Uh, he helps others out of the goodness of the heart, uh, out of the goodness of his heart, but he doesn't help anybody because he needs other people. And, uh, you know, for a very long time, we've all been sold this story. You know, uh, if, if I had to explain Paladin in shorthand to somebody today, I'd probably say, well, he's like Batman on steroids and twice as ridiculous. You know, like we have character after character after character given to us of, of people who don't really need anybody around them or maybe only need one or two people around them at best and that is so different than what we see in Scripture. But we, we buy into that lie, hook, line, and sinker. And so, I want to pray with you this morning, and then I want to turn to the Word together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the grace that You've given us in Christ. Lord, we thank You that You have called us together to worship this morning, and Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we turn to your word now, that you would humble us in your grace by the power of your spirit, Lord, that we would consider, Lord, the grace that you've given us in Christ and the example that you've given us in Christ, Lord, that we would see plainly our own sins and be humble enough to repent of them and strive for greater faithfulness in Christ. Lord, not only that you would continue to renew our minds and draw us closer to Christ's likeness, but Lord, that you would use our example to demonstrate the power of the gospel to others who do not yet know Christ. Lord, we pray that in the fellowship of this body, Lord, in the fellowship of your church, Lord, you would demonstrate the beauty of Christ. 
Lord, we ask that you would do this in his name. Amen. I, uh, I listened to the last few sermons, uh, and I got I to gotta tell you from the outset that if I can't alliterate like Rob can alliterate. Uh, so I want to give you a very simple thesis from the beginning. Uh, and that is that uh, when we're talking about justification, right, uh, what matters is that we have a relationship with Christ. But when we're talking about growing in Christ-likeness, when we're talking about sanctification, the relationships we have with the people around us absolutely matter. That you cannot, cannot have a healthy, robust walk with Christ without regularly gathering and fellowshipping with the people of God. God designed each of us to be in fellowship with his gathered church and we cannot spiritually thrive apart from relationships with people around us. There is absolutely no such thing as a healthy Lone Ranger Christian. There never has been and there never will be. At the same time, I think uh, speaking to the gathered church about the need for fellowship, uh, the need to gather, kind of sounds a little bit like preaching to the choir. I, I wish very much that that were the case. But I think uh, one of the things that characterizes the fellowship of Churches in America is a very cheap imitation of fellowship. Uh, J.I. Packer said, we're, we're uh, living on candy and we think it's a square meal. We think that spending time with other Christians is fellowship. And that's not it. It's never been it. I'm very thankful that fellowship is a core value of Faith Bible Church. But belonging to a church with fellowship as a core value doesn't mean that you have fellowship any more than belonging to a church that preaches the gospel makes you a Christian. I've been around students long enough to know that being around people who are learning does not make you a learner. Fellowship, fellowship, koinonia, means a partnership or a participation in something. In the first century, if you would have heard somebody say, oh, we're in koinonia, right, you wouldn't assume that they like, casually had conversation once in a while. You would have asked them, well, what's your partnership in? You would assume that they were very closely, intimately related, and they were working together with a specific purpose. So when we think about the gathered church, what is our partnership? What is our participation? What, what are we 
sharing. And I suspect if we could listen in on most conversations, not just here, but probably at most churches in Lincoln this morning, and we, you know, understood, well, what is the main topic here, right? And then we could listen in on most of the conversations that happen between unbelievers at graduation parties this afternoon, and we could discern, you know, what is the main topic of conversation. There wouldn't really be much difference between the conversations in the churches and the conversations amongst unbelievers. Sports, talk about graduation, talk about summer vacation plans, talk about kids, talk about the weather. Ask yourself, do you you really think, if if you can remember the last 10 conversations you've had with people here, what was the subject? What's happening when Christians spend time together is, at best, a cheap imitation of fellowship. It is the best thing that this world has to offer, but it certainly isn't what God has for the church. And I wish that were the end of it. I wish that was the only thing I could say about Country Bible. The only thing I might suspect were true of Faith Bible and most other churches. That isn't. For some of us, that's true. For others, uh, even spending time with other Christians is a bridge too far. You know, we walk into church a couple minutes late or we close our car door as the preacher saying amen. We routinely text our small group and say, I'm sorry, I'm just too busy this week. I, I have other things going on. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to make it today. I, I'm not going to make it to church this morning. I, n- I need to get the boat out this weekend. I have to mow my yard before the neighbors complain. My kids have a game today. You know, I really just need a day of rest. This has been a really hard week. We tell ourselves all kinds of lies to deprioritize uh, even spending time with the people of God. And we convince ourselves that they're, they're good reasons. Like, uh, it's, a, it's just one week. Uh, and maybe they sound like good reasons to us, but I suspect probably on the last day when we're standing before the throne of the Most High God and he said, well, what about that week? And you're like, well, you know, soccer game, couldn't help it. They're not going to sound as good. Who do we think we are? What do we think we're communicating to our neighbors or our own kids for that matter when we deprioritize the fellowship of the church for all of these other things? What are we doing to our own souls? I don't think that Genesis 11 was an accident. You know, things didn't play out. I don't know what else to do. I tried the flood. I guess let's try languages. 
Let's, let's just see what happens. God split up the nations intentionally for the rest of the scripture. He's then gathering the nations back together, ultimately in Christ, to display the power of the gospel. That he can take remarkably diverse persons, people that are so different from one another that no other power on earth could ever unite them and drawing them together to demonstrate exactly what he's done in Jesus Christ. And and we're sacrificing that plan for what? To mow? For, for why? Well, I don't, I don't want to ask them serious questions. I mean, yeah, I'll go to church, but how about, how about that sunshine? Boy, it's hot. Like, I don't want to ask them serious questions. That would be awkward. Who knows what they'll say? Like, if we know that God's plan for the church is ultimately that we would fellowship one another in deep, profound, meaningful ways because it will display the power of the gospel to a dying world, and we sacrifice that, what do we have to say for ourselves? And we have to be spending time together to be in fellowship, but fellowship is an awful lot more than spending time with one another. And true fellowship is qualitatively different than just spending time together. It requires that, sure, but we are people who are bound in Jesus Christ. Whatever differences there are between us, no matter how unlike we are in the world's eyes, the fact that God would draw us together and unite us in Christ is a display of the power of the gospel. And we absolutely cannot sacrifice that. It is, in some sense, sacrificing the mission of the church. It is sacrificing the worship of the church. You know, I, I don't, I don't want to say that you know, maybe I've been given the most important week, but think about all the other week, or things you're talking about this week, the things that are evident in Acts chapter 2. How many of those things are they doing on their own? None of them. They're praying together. They're sharing in the apostles' teaching together. They're certainly the fellowship. They're engaged in mission and worship together. God is calling us together, and we've traded it away for nothing. We who believe that our identity is rooted in the gospel have to know that the fellowship of the church is a priority. We know that we've been redeemed by God in Christ. We are not just a family, as Dave read, we are a body laboring together in the Spirit for the glory of God. The, the blessing of our partnership is rooted in the participation that we have in Christ. Now, what possible greater commonality could we share? Uh, maybe, yeah, the person sitting next to you is in a different life stage. Maybe they 
have different interests. Maybe they talk a lot and you don't talk at all. You might be different in every possible category that the world considers, but you are both called in Christ. That is the basis of your identity. And that's why I wanted to turn to this text this morning. When they initially approached me about this, I have no idea where on earth I want to go. Uh, And it's not because the New Testament doesn't talk about fellowship. It's because so much of the New Testament is about fellowship. But in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, we read, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in a full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Our text this morning starts with this word only. And don't don't ignore the force of this. Paul has spent a chapter updating the Philippians on where he stands uh, and some things that have gone into his considerations about his own life and how to see the gospel advance. And he's turning at this point now to talk about how the Philippians should think about their lives on the basis of the priorities he's laid out in chapter 1. And he starts, I mean, this is a hard only. It's like a, you know, if, if you were a child and you were leaving, or your parents were leaving for the day, and they said, oh, only, you know, go out and do that, that'd be one thing. But if your parent looked you in the face and said, only, there's one thing, you know you've got to do that thing before they get home or look out. Paul's starting with only, there's one thing I want from you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the verb with force here. Everything else that follows uh, is basically a participle. He's explaining how do we do what he just commanded us to do. And as he goes on, uh, we see that, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm there or if I'm not there. You're not doing this to impress me. You're doing this for the Most High God. Uh, The one thing that I want from you, this life worthy of the gospel, 
is that you stand firm in one spirit. Right? This is feet planted, uh, not moving. We're united together. If you are a fan of uh, Charlton Heston or Gerard Butler or any, any ancient fighting, you know, like you know that the power of a military formation at this point, anyway, was that they planted side by side and they moved together as one unit. Right? That if one part of the line falters, the whole line falters. Right? And that's what he wants them to be thinking about now. It, our responsibility is to plant ourselves side by side. And he explains that further in saying that we're to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Right? Not only are we firmly rooted, but we're working together side by side. And there's a quality of, of strain here. It's, it's not always going to be easy. There's going to be something difficult about it. But ultimately, our striving, our standing firm, is a life worthy of the gospel. And, you know, when I thought about that, like, I can't do that singularly. I can't, I can't do that on my own. If Paul's saying, there's one thing I want from you, live a life worthy of the gospel, and then the thing he commands me to do is only to be done in fellowship with other believers, then I have to be in fellowship with other believers. And I'm sure that we've all heard people say like, yeah, but do you really have to go to church? I mean, where is it commanded in the New Testament? Think about the absurdity of that. Well, let's look at books in the New Testament primarily written to churches and look for a verse that says, gather as a church. Well, of course it's assumed in the New Testament. He's writing to a gathered church. And even in this text, we see it's assumed. Like, Paul can't imagine that anybody would think, I can go about the Christian life on my own. I don't need the believer, other believers around me. He, he assumes we understand that, that it's been God's plan from the beginning to unite us in the gospel and give us a mission to work together towards and he continues, not just that we're striving together side by side, but we're encouraging each other. We're strengthening each other because we're never frightened in anything by our opponents. Right? And frightened, like, it's, it's the word that we would use to describe, like a, in, a, in battle you see like a horse rear up because it's frightened of what it, it knows is impending. That's, that's the idea here, like... Uh, don't act erratically. Don't be scared. Like, we are strengthening each other as we stand firm. And, you know, it, it strikes me that uh, things we often hear, uh, you know, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know what, what purpose I have, what the Lord's calling me to do. We're never called to discern that on our own. Like, we are supposed to be helping each other understand that. And when our circumstances seem entirely daunting, but we've isolated ourselves from the community of God, it shouldn't surprise us that we're frightened by what opposes us. Because 
we're out of step with the rest of the formation. We're called to be people who are striving together, supporting each other, so that when opposition comes, we have the strength of the people around us to face those opponents. But more than that, uh, it's, it's not just for the sake of the people who are standing together that we're called to stand together and strive side by side, but also for the sake of the opponents we're called to do this very thing. He says, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction and our salvation, and that it's from God. As those who oppose the church see the remarkable unity of the church despite the radical differences in uh, culture, background, stage of life, and every other imaginable thing, it's a demonstration to the dying world of the power of the gospel. The fellowship of the church is absolutely part of God's intention for softening the hearts of unbelievers. And when we sacrifice the fellowship of the church for anything, we are compromising the mission of God to reach a dying world. We're compromising our ability to stand against those who oppose us. We are compromising a life worthy of the gospel. And he goes on to say that it shouldn't really surprise us that we are facing opponents, that there is opposition against the church. He, he goes so far as to say that not only have we been given the grace of Jesus Christ, but we've also been given this opportunity to suffer for His sake. We are engaged in the same sort of opposition that Paul is facing, that Satan is absolutely going to rage against the church, and we have this opportunity to fill up the suffering of Christ. It's a gracious gift from the Lord. And he continues. It's unfortunate, I think, that there's a chapter break here. So, based on everything he just said, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and we should think about these as rhetorical questions. He's not asking, is there any encouragement in Christ? He knows absolutely that the answer is yes. Yes, there is encouragement in Christ. Yes, we are comforted in love. Yes, we participate in the Spirit. Yes, we see affection and sympathy. So then, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in, of, in full accord and of one mind. And again, you see Paul like narrowing the focus, narrowing the focus through chapter 1 until we get here and we realize that the thing that has been driving Paul throughout chapter 1 is this single-minded focus on the advance of the gospel. That whatever circumstance he faces, whatever his situation is, that he is driven by this desire to see the gospel advance. And the very thing he wants for the Philippian church is a single-minded focus on the advance of the gospel. Right? That, again, 
whatever differences there are in the Philippian church, whatever the Philippian church is facing, that they collectively are united in their focus on the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that concern drives everything else. That they see every circumstance, every situation, every opportunity. They make every evaluation based on whether or not the thing before them serves to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if in God's grace they have two things that could potentially advance the gospel, they choose the thing that seems to most advance the gospel. This is the thing that drives the church. That this life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we collectively as the people of God are united in making our supreme concern the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And if you were to ask me, okay, so fellowship should be a priority, but how do we as a church really make fellowship happen? Like, what does it look like? What does it look like for a church to make the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ its overriding principal concern? Right here. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's what Paul's been arguing in chapter 1, that look, I, yeah, my circumstances aren't great, but in humility, I'm counting opportunities to share the gospel with people who otherwise wouldn't be hearing the gospel as more important than my personal comfort. And now what I want from you, Philippian church, is that you humbly put the concerns of others above your own. That is what the fellowship of the church ought to look like. And lest anyone think that he's saying, you know, don't think about yourself, he clarifies here in 4 that each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he's not saying we should neglect our own interests, but he's saying uh, that we should be so focused on the interests of others that <clears throat> we are absolutely willing to put the needs of others before our own wants. But if we were honest with ourselves, if, if I'm honest with myself, I would say almost all the time I put my wants over the needs of others. And every time I'm doing that, I'm putting a little tarnish on the gospel. I'm, I'm obscuring the power of the gospel. That every time that I humble myself, Every time I put the interests of other people over my own, I am absolutely adorning the gospel. I'm doing something that will 
draw the attention of a dying world to the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And so ask yourself, am I living in a way that demonstrates the the fellowship of the church, not just time together, but true fellowship of the church, a, a type of communion where it's clear that I am putting the interests of other people over my own all the time, or Does my life generally show that I'm principally self-concerned maybe with an hour here and there exception? True fellowship isn't simply being with other Christians, but it does certainly require that we spend time with each other. I would also say that true fellowship uh, isn't just conversation with other Christians, but it certainly does require that we spend time listening to others and speaking with them. Uh, True fellowship, the sort of fellowship uh, that we're to be striving for, is a partnership with other people who are genuinely focused on the advance of the gospel. It's sharing each other's burdens while we're speaking the grace of the gospel into one another's lives. It's striving side by side together for the faith of the gospel. It's standing firm no matter what the world throws at us. True fellowship uh, demonstrates, I think, to a, a dying world that we are remarkably different by God's grace that we are single-mindedly united in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that gospel compels us to give up others or excuse me give up self for the sake of others that it drives every decision that we're making that it shapes every priority that we have that we see every ounce of suffering that we endure through the lens of the gospel, and we understand that we're facing all of these things together, that we are people who have been radically transformed by the awesome power of God in Christ, and that we regularly display it in the way that we relate to one another. And at that point, I'd say, uh, practically speaking, as a as a pastor for some years, it means that we are true fellowship. means that we are taking the time to actually ask each other the questions that matter. And you might say, like, walking up to somebody in the lobby and saying, you know, how have you seen the grace of the gospel work out in life lately? Might lead to a really awkward conversation. Like, what if they start talking about their sin? And like, I'll feel uncomfortable. I won't know what to say. Like, weird. 
True fellowship is that. It's taking the time to press each other towards greater faithfulness in Christ. And that means more than talking about the weather. It means asking each other, how have you been strengthened in the gospel lately? How are you challenged by the sermon today? What have you been learning from the word recently? It means actually having conversations about the gospel with other Christians. I want to say more, but I promised my, Mike and I have a, a history together, and I promised Mike that I wouldn't go for two hours today. Uh, I want to say this. Uh, give yourself to true fellowship with other believers for your own soul's sake. Even if you're a Immature believer, it's, you know, I don't know, I can't think about other people, I'm, I'm pretty focused on myself. Well, in self-interest then, give your fellowship the people of God. Maybe it's going to be hard, maybe it's going to be awkward, but for your own soul's sake, do it. That is one of the principal ways that the Spirit of God is going to rasp off the hard parts of the sinful man. God is going to challenge you. He's going to rebuke you. He's going to refine you through the wisdom of other believers. I, I, I heard from Brad some time ago that he was preaching through the one another's of Scripture. That's a fantastic idea because there are so many one another's and we all need to understand that there are so many commands of the New Testament that we can't fulfill in isolation. We can't fulfill apart from fellowship. You know, like, if I stay at home and I watch the sermon and then, you know, somebody calls me and says, well, how was this morning? You know, did you, did you exercise patience with anybody? I'm like, well, myself, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> like, did you rebuke anybody? Oh, I don't know. Not myself. That would have been weird. I, I don't know. Did you love anybody? Well, I don't know. I didn't interact with anybody. I don't understand my selfishness uh, until I really have to be patient with another person. I don't understand my self-centeredness until I have to give up my wants to meet a brother or sister's need. I don't really appreciate just how egotistical I am until I refuse to rebuke a brother or sister's sin because I don't want to feel awkward. I don't see how much God has given me in Jesus Christ until I really appreciate the depth of my own sin. And time with the people of God will certainly reveal to you the depth of your own sin. I need to be with other believers to see these things. I need to be hearing the gospel from other believers when I'm 
beaten down by guilt or shame or when the enemy is screaming in my ear or when uh, the siren song of the world starts to turn my head, I need to hear the gospel from other believers and I can only hear it from other believers that I'm in fellowship with. More than that, I'd say, give yourself to true fellowship for the sake of Christ's people. Just as we need these things, everybody around us needs these things too, and they won't receive it unless we're active participants. You know, the only exception to that, maybe, is if you can look around the room and say, well, I don't really need these people. I'm the most spiritually mature person here. Which, <laughs> if you are thinking that, uh, <laughs> go back to point one. <laughs> uh, but even if it were true, that you are singularly uh, the most mature person to ever sit in a pew at faith, or seat, sorry. Uh, we absolutely need you. We need you to be peppering conversations with your wisdom. We need you to be reminding us of the gospel. We need you to be using your spiritual gift and equipping us to use our spiritual gifts. You, more than anybody else, have a responsibility to give yourself to the fellowship of the church for the sake of God's people. And then I'd say, give yourself to the true fellowship with other believers for the sake of the church's witness to a world without hope. As I said, the world seeing the church come together, united in the power of the gospel, is one of the starkest contrasts between the church and the world. This is more true now than it's ever been. Our world is so fragmented and disconnected, you are never going to find anything like the true fellowship of the church in this world. 20 years ago, maybe. I remember as a child going to coffee with my grandpa in a small town, which they're saying we're not in a small town, but Lincoln is made up of people who came from small towns. You know what that is. Maybe not. It's different than getting coffee with somebody. Getting coffee means I make a plan and I go meet somebody for coffee. Going to coffee means I'm going to go have coffee at the cafe or at the gas station or wherever, and whoever else shows up, shows up, and we're all going to talk about whatever comes to mind. We used to see imitations of the church's fellowship around. There were social clubs, people would get together. Now more than ever, that's not happening. Our world is dividing over everything. And we have this beautiful opportunity as the world is yearning for community to demonstrate true God-honoring fellowship. To demonstrate the power of Christ in the most profound of ways to draw people to Him as they see for themselves what the Gospel does in the heart of a sinner. 
and we're trading it away. How beautifully we could display the power of the gospel if we did more than spend time together. If we strove side by side, if we stood firm, if we were truly united in Christ, that would demonstrate the power of the gospel. And I would expect that you're thinking, yeah, it sounds like a lot. Uh, I expect probably that the Philippians were thinking, that sounds like a lot. Which is, I think, why Paul says what he says in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Think like this. It's yours in Christ Jesus. If we were relying on our flesh to give us this sort of mind, to give us these sorts of priorities, we would never have them. But God bought this for us in Christ. He graciously gives it to us in Christ. It's ours in Christ. We just now have to work out this salvation with fear and trembling. And so, I'm going to say these things and you think, I've fallen fall short of that. Well, repent. Turn to Christ and repent. You're right, God. I have been my own priority for far too long. I have not looked to the Lord's people. Repent. Christ will receive you in grace and He will graciously give you the mindset that I've been talking about. And for others of you, maybe you'd say, that's that's basically my life, or at least half of it. Strive for more. The Christian life is never good enough. You never have enough fellowship. You've never been faithful enough. We are striving together, pressing each other towards greater and greater faithfulness, towards greater Christ-likeness. And so before you leave today, spend time in fellowship. Glory in what we're going to witness in baptism. Celebrate the gospel together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for calling us together as a people in Christ. Lord, we thank you for demonstrating uh, a life focused on the good of others, by of counting others more significant than ourselves in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would increasingly give us the mind of Christ. Lord, that we would strive to serve those around us, to seek their good in a way that demonstrates the power of the gospel. And Lord, as, as we do this, we pray that you would further mold us in Christ's image. We pray that you would 
further mold the people around us in the image of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would use this life together as a body to draw others to the grace of Christ. Lord, we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.